We are very, very blessed, but sometimes we lose sight of that. Case in point, this week I was in a thrift store, and I was going to buy a pair of shoes for a homeless person that I know. The sign of the cash register said this, they will be a $5 charge for whining. To tell you the truth, I was pretty much convicted that I needed to pay them the fox. Not so much for any whining I was doing on the outside, but for all the whining that I was doing on the inside. So here I am to buy shoes for a homeless person, and that means that person doesn't have a home. And why am I whining? Embarrassingly, it was because of some of the things related to my actually having a home. And part of me doesn't even want to tell you this, because I fear you'll write me off, you never want to hear me again. But I hope you'll give me a break as a follower of Christ, a fellow sojourner in life, trying to do my best. But obviously, as you're about to hear, I don't always do that. I fall short. So what was I whining inside about? First of all, for several days last week, my email was out. Oh, it worked sort of, but not completely. Because it sort of worked and sort of didn't work, I was in limbo. I didn't know if the messages I sent out actually got to anyone or not. And where were the messages that people said they were going to be sending me about things? Did they not send them or were they just lost in this on-again, off-again failure? And I know it's just a first-world problem due to the blessings of me having a home and having the Internet. But I had lots and lots of really important stuff that was going on, and it all went through the emails, driving me crazy. And then there's the 39 back-and-forth messages to the email hosting company that I worked with over a three-day period. So don't get me started. Next source of frustration and whining, and I really don't even want to look you guys in the eyes as I say this, but here it goes. It was with my pool refinishing company. As you guys know, we got a house a few months ago. The pool needed to be refinished. And finally, they got around to emptying it and said they'd be back in three days to continue the work. Three, four, five, six days a week passed and nothing happened. No communication. There were no workers. And the original start date for all this was actually the first. Not the first of this month, July 1st, but the first of last month, June 1st. And so there's this big, dry, empty hole that takes up most of my backyard that as we sit on the porch, we're staring at day after day after day. And I know, I know it's very much a first world problem due to the blessing of me having a home that has a swimming pool that needs to be resurfaced. How terrible is that? And then... There was that watered-down, looked like watered-down paint, or so it appeared, from a brush being washed out close to my wife Patty's brand-new shiny black car. And here's this paint stuff all over the front of the car. But again, it's due to the blessing of having a new car. And well, I need to tell you, there's several other things that happened that just tipped my whinable threshold over and had its gripe grip on me. So there you have it. I could whine on this morning, but I won't. But last week, I was so very frustrated and so very stressed. And I wanted to crawl out of my perspective so that I just could get free of that. But then someone said to me, it will all work out. Bill, after all, God never puts more on us than we can handle. It's not like any of these things can be resolved. They're going to be lingering on and on for very long or forever. And certainly it's not like those things that were serious in the life of this woman you're about to see whose friend said the same thing to her, but instead of it comforting her, ultimately she ended up more confused by the rather exaggerated ending. Watch this. I just can't do it anymore. I have nothing left. 
between a divorce, the cancer, your mom dying and being laid off, I know it feels like you're going through a lot. <laughs> Believe me, I have been there. Never forget, God never gives you more than you can handle. God never said that. So there you go. That was a rather flippant and a kind of confusing answer to a very complicated and compassionate conversation with a rather irreverent angel punching and correcting the woman who lovingly told that to her friend that God never gives us more than we can handle. And the truth is the angel was absolutely right that doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible at all. But what we commonly think of when we hear this are the words from a very powerful verse which the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians about temptation. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in the NIV, Paul says, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And you see, that's what we're all looking for, isn't it? When we're tempted or when we're weighed down, we feel like we can't handle the weight of everything upon us, we want a way out. And notice it doesn't say, however, that we're going to be pre-delivered from that weight or temptation, or that we're not going to feel that weight or the temptation. No way. What Paul says is the weight of everything upon us won't crush us. It won't destroy us, for God will give us a way out so that we can stand and stand firm under that weight before he guides us out from under it. And if you remember in the Old Testament, God called Gideon to lead all of Israel against the Midianites and against insurmountable odds. And Gideon's response was this. Let's see, I am the least one in my family, and my family is the least in my tribe, and my tribe is the least tribe in all of Israel. You know, there's no way I can come close to handling that, Gideon said, because after all, do the math. I am the least of the least of the least. King David, when weighed down by his sin with Bathsheba, said this in Psalm 38.4 in the NIV, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And even Jesus himself in Mark 14, 33 and 34 in the NIV experienced this in the Garden of Gethsemane, which says, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And so he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so Jesus, like Gideon and David, even Jesus thought for a moment, I can't handle this yet. God guided him to a place out from underneath the burden of the stress and the weight and the distress of that. And just like God did that for Gideon and did that for David and Jesus, he will do the same thing for you. He will do the same thing for me. It has to do with which eye that you're looking out from. What do I mean by that? Well, we all obviously have two eyes, but we can't look at different directions at once like this guy on the screen is doing physically. But our minds have two eyes and two ways of seeing. And we can see in two different directions in our mind's eye at once. For we can see through an eye of fear or we can see through an eye of faith. Now, Gideon, David, and Jesus saw through which eye as they said in their own way, I can't handle this. Well, they saw through their eye of fear. And each of us has an eye of fear. Now, Hebrews 11.1 1, says this. Now, faith is being certain of what we do not see. And let me tell you, when you're looking through your mind's eye of fear, there are at least five different things that we do not see. And so the first is this. 
When looking through our mind's eye of fear, we exaggerate our difficulties. When you look at your problem through eyes of fear, they just get bigger, don't they? The more you look at your problem, the more exaggerated that it gets, and the larger it gets, somebody criticizes you, and the more you think about it, pretty soon you think the whole world is out there criticizing you. It grows by proportion. That's when we're looking through our eye of fear, we exaggerate our difficulties. Now, amazingly, right after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the most powerful country in the world, Israel's spies to the promised land ended up being frightened by what? Not by another nation. They were frightened by a single tribe, a single group of people, right after they had overcome the most powerful nation in the world. Their fear was thus exaggerated. Their difficulties, their perception of reality just wasn't true anymore. And when the eye of fear exaggerates our perceptions and difficulties, it takes us out of the path that God wants us to take in life. For the Israelites, this was a 40-year wandering around in circles path which led them back to the same place, exactly the same place they've been standing about to enter the promised land. And for us, that path can lead us far from where God wants us and far from where we want to be. Last week, my eye of frustration and fear embarrassingly exaggerated every stressful thing in my life, like the difficulty of my email problems or getting my pool refinished or getting paint splattered on a new car. None of those stresses was as difficult or frustrating as my eye of fear and frustration in my mind made them to be. As Hebrews 11.1 says, those exaggerations, when that happens to us, we just do not see them. And so when looking through our eye of frustration and fear, firstly, we exaggerate our difficulties. And secondly, when we look at them through the mind's eye, we underestimate our abilities. And now, 10 of the 12 spies into the promised land said this in Numbers 33:13 in the NIV. We seem like grasshoppers in our eyes, and we look the same to them. Talk about low self-esteem. That, that was their own self-image. And when it says we look the same to them... How did they know what they looked like to the enemy? Well, they didn't know. But there's a word for that. It's called projection. And we tend to project our fears, don't we, upon others. And that's what they've done. They're projecting their fears. They've been slaves. Now, think about this. For 400 years, and they've been freed for just a few months, but they're still enslaved mentally by the condition that they see themselves in. They are enslaved not by Pharaoh now, but by an idea, image, self-concept that's all centered on fear. And perhaps people have said things to you or about you behind your back that you overheard that weren't true, but you kind of sort of believe them. Maybe they're not in your life anymore. Maybe they've even passed on, but they're still there somewhere kind of believing that lie. You're enslaved to that image that they had of you. Perhaps you had somebody like a parent, a friend, a brother and sister who said, you're uncoordinated. So what do you think about yourself? You think you're uncoordinated. Or maybe somebody says, you're never going to amount to much. And so you think you're never going to amount to much. Or you're not good at speaking, and on and on and on. They told you things which you're still carrying around, and you're still in some way enslaved by. That's a self-imposed prison. And guess what? You're not in Egypt anymore. Not in Egypt at all. So again, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, we do not see how we underestimate our abilities. And so when looking through that mind's eye of fear, first we exaggerate our difficulties, secondly we underestimate our abilities, and thirdly we can get so very discouraged 
a bad report from the spies concerning the promised land in Numbers 14.1 in the Living Bible says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. They had a pity party. Poor us, we're now crying and weeping. Why? Because we don't get to go into the promised land. But what's keeping them out of the promised land is simply their fear. They're not living in their mind's eye of faith. And we too, like them, can get so easily discouraged. And this discouragement quickly moves us to our number four on the list. And that is, we start to gripe about lots of things in our lives. In fact, everything we perceive is going wrong in our lives. We want to gripe about that. Numbers 14.2 in the New Living Translation, after the night's pity party, says this. Their voices rose in a great chorus of complaint against Moses and Aaron. We wished we had died in Egypt. So first they mourned, and then they murmured, and then they cried, and then they complained. And so what's going on here? Well, it's called discontent. And it's spelled with a big old capital letters of D-I-S-C-O-N-T-E-N-T, and we are not immune to that either. So then fifthly, when we look through our mind's eye of fear, we can give up, and we can blame God. Continue with the Israelites in Numbers 14.3 in the New Living Translation. Following the spies' poor report, they said this. They said, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Notice they're blaming God. They're blaming God for not letting them go into the promised land. But God isn't holding them back. It's their fear that's holding them back. And now they're second-guessing this whole promised land thing. Do we really even want to go there? And now, too, they're remembering the good old days back in Egypt. You have to ask the question, good old days? (laughs) What good old days? For 400 years of slavery, that's where the good old days, why would anybody want to go back to Egypt? Yes, it was slavery, but it was predictable. And it was sort of safe. I guess you could say it was safe slavery, and a lot of us get stuck in that. Sort of safe slavery. We're enslaved by a relationship or we're enslaved by a fear, enslaved by a habit or a compulsion, enslaved by a thought. We're enslaved by something we really don't like, but in our own way we say, uh, at least I know what it's like back in Egypt, and I'll stick with that. Yes, it's a bad situation. I know this habit is self-defeating, but at least it's predictable and I understand it. It's just who I am. It's what I do. There's no freedom in that at all. Because you see, there's no real freedom when you're in a bad place and you just continue to stay there without taking risks to move from that place, to leave the oppression of your Egypt. And you see, spiritually, it's true that safety and freedom are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And either you're moving more and more in the direction of safety and slavery, or else you're moving more in the direction of taking spiritual risks And it's freedom. God made you to live by faith and to take a risk, not to die out in the desert somewhere. So let's contrast looking through your mind's eye of fear with looking through your mind's eye of faith. And it's not that we no longer see, but now we in faith see, which causes us to change the perspective greatly. And in faith we see four things that are a result of that. So when looking through your eyes of faith, firstly, 
Faith shrinks my difficulty and problems. You see, as you look through an eye of faith, it opens me up to God's perspective and His thing, and it goes beyond my limited perspective, and it shrinks my problem by giving me His perspective. And God's point of view and mine, with that, it's a whole lot manageable with Him because He's helping us to deal with the particulars of it. It's because we have a big God, and your problem compared to Him is pretty doggone small, even though it seems huge to you. But when you you go with His vision and His perception, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, if you have a, a small God, <laughs> then your problem will seem awfully big. Even as we talked about, it will seem to get bigger and bigger because it's exaggerated by your fear. Concerning this, Genesis 18:14, NIV says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is what? No. Obviously, no. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. But it seems less obvious to us, doesn't it, when... We are struggling and we are frustrated and hurt. Luke's gospel, the Bible says, nothing is impossible. Looking through the eye of fear, it's going to exaggerate your problems and your difficulties. And viewing them through eye of faith will shrink your problems and difficulties. But when you close that eye of fear and you open your eyes of faith, secondly, rather amazingly, faith opens unexpected doors in unexpected ways. If you study the Bible, you'll find every time that God moves in unexpected things in unexpected ways. It's because somebody believed he could, and somebody believed he would. In Mark eleven twenty-two through 24, in the contemporary English version, Jesus said this, Have faith in God. If you have faith in God and you don't doubt, you could tell this mountain to get up and jump into the sea, and it would. Whatever you ask for in prayer will be yours if you only have the faith. Now, why is Jesus talking about telling a mountain to go take a flying leap into the ocean? It's because it illustrates that through faith, how God can do unexpected things in unexpected ways. And the Bible shows us, doesn't it, again and again and again, that the law of faith is higher than the law of nature. And the law of faith can overturn the law of nature any time. That's how God does unexpected things in unexpected ways. With rightly focused faith, you'd say to a mountain, go jump into the ocean, and the mountain would. So let's switch gears here for just a moment. Let me ask you, what is the mountain that's in your life? What is that mountain that needs to be moved? What's the mountain in your life that, as you look at it, you say, it's never going to move, it's never going to change? If you hear yourself saying that, then you've already decided You've already decided it's going to do just that. It's never going to change, never going to move. You've already decided that. And that's a self-defeating and a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, how do you know that mountain that's in you is never going to change, is never going to move? Maybe God wants the law of faith to supersede the law of nature in you. God has done that in the past. He does it in the present. He'll do it in the future. God is in the mountain-moving business. So do not doubt. Look at this verse in Matthew 13, 58, where Jesus did not do many miracles there. That was in his hometown because of their lack of faith. Their lack of faith keep Jesus from doing many miracles, from doing many unexpected things in unexpected ways among them. And you also may say, I don't see any of those kinds of things happening in my life. And the question is, how are you viewing your life? Are you viewing it through an eye of frustration and fear which clouds and blinds your vision to such things? 
Or are you looking with an eye of faith, which opens you to see the unexpected things of God coming to you in unexpected ways? So faith, firstly, it shrinks your problems and difficulties, while secondly, uh, turning the handle to the door to unexpected things coming to us in unexpected ways, including this thirdly, faith moves God on our behalf. That doesn't mean that God ends up waiting around on you all the time just to serve you and me rather than you and I serving him. And neither is this the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel or any version of that. God doesn't become this genie who we rub the bottle and then we say a prayer and we drop 50 cents into the spiritual slot machine and then you hit the jackpot. No, God's not your genie and my genie. God is God and you're not. I'm not. He's not here to cater to our every whim. But at the same time, Jesus also said this in Matthew 9, 29 in the NIV. According to your faith, it will be done to you. If you expect God to do little in your life, you got it. He's going to do little. If you expect God to do a lot in your life, he'll do a lot. If you don't expect God to do anything in your life at all, he won't do anything. But God wants to stretch you in me. He wants to challenge you in me. And he doesn't want us to be satisfied playing on the so-called kiddie beach of life in the shallows of water. God wants you and me to put on our big boy and big girl spiritual swimsuits, and he wants us to dive into the deep end. God wants to challenge you to believe more than you've ever believed in him and about him. You know, I believe God to bring about some really big things in my life. Didn't start off, though, with really big things. For all of us, it starts out with our developing the muscle of faith, just a little bit at a time. And as we live our lives, we're pressing, we're pushing, we are stretching, we're developing that muscle of faith. And as a parent, those of you who have children, know you love to bring pleasure to your kids. And when you do that, what does it do? It brings pleasure back to you. In the same way, it gives God great pleasure to provide for you. It gives God pleasure to watch you succeed. If God says, hey, that's my boy, that's my girl, they're exactly who I made them to be. The Bible says God does take pleasure in the success of his saints. Again, according to your faith, it will be done to you. The problem with us is, is we act as if the wrong things move God. Because God isn't moved by my complaints. He's not moved by my griping. God's not moved by my grumbling or my whining or none of those things. God is moved when I say, God, I'm trusting you for your presence. I'm trusting you for the promise of the unexpected things coming to me from you in unexpected ways. So faith firstly shrinks our problems and difficulties, while secondly it turns the handle on the door to unexpected things coming to us in unexpected ways because faith moves God on our behalf. And in doing that, fourthly, faith gives me the power to hold on in the tough times. And that's because God's way doesn't always take you out of the problem. You know that. But faith takes you through the problem. Faith doesn't always take away the pain, but faith gives you the ability to handle the pain. Faith doesn't make life heaven on earth. This world's never going to be heaven on earth. But things are never going to go perfectly on this planet. You are going to have some pain. You're going to have some difficulties. You're going to have some suffering in your life. 
But what faith does is it gives you the ability to handle it. It won't take you out of the storm, but it will calm you in the midst of the storm. I remember reading stories about Corey Ten Boom. She was a young woman sent to the Nazi concentration camps of Auschwitz. And she said the people who lasted in those concentration camps were who? They were the people that had the deepest faith. And why is that? Well, they were the ones that faith gave them the power to hold on in those tough times. Because faith produces perseverance. And faith produces that ability for us to to bounce back. Study after study has shown that probably the greatest thing you can do for your kids, the greatest thing you can do for yourself, is to learn the lessons of resilience. It's the ability to bounce back. It's the ability to keep going. Why? Because nobody goes through life with unbroken chain of successes. Everybody has failures and flops and duds and mistakes. We all embarrass ourselves. Nobody goes through life scot-free. We have pains. We have problems. We have pressures. And the people who make it in life, they have resiliency. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 in the Living Bible, this is Paul's testimony. Paul says, we're pressed in on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed and we're not broken. We're perplexed, which means we don't understand why we're having to go through what we go through, but we don't give up and quit. We're attacked by all these things, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we're not knocked out. We get up and we keep going. Well, where do you get resiliency like that? You get it through faith. And that is probably why we need to work on strengthening the eye of faith more than anything else because it is faith that does these things. It shrinks my problems. It opens the door for the unexpected in unexpected ways. It moves God on my behalf. and It gives me the power to hold on in tough times. I remember back when I was a little boy, America started the space race. And we were racing the Russians to see who was going to be able to get to the moon first. And for a while, as they started, Russian really was ahead. And they were sending these cosmonauts out before we were sending out astronauts into space. I remember Yuri Gagurin, who was a very famous first cosmonaut. He was also an atheist. He was the first man to go up and circle the earth. And when he came down, he said, it was like I was an eagle. I searched the heavens and I found no God. I looked for God in the heavens when I was up there, and I did not see him. There is no God. And the atheists on earth, they applauded. They went, yay, 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 Yuri, you just proved there's no God. And a few months later, John Glenn, who was a Christian, later served as a senator, was an astronaut in the Gemini program. He went up and he circled the earth three times. And when John Glenn came back down, his first words to the interviewer were, I saw God everywhere. I felt his glory in the heavens. I saw his presence in the stars. I felt his power in the sun. I saw God everywhere. So which one of them was telling the truth? The answer is they both were. Because what you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. So look at life through your mind's eye of faith and not your mind's eye of fear and frustration. For Luke one thirty seven in the NIV tells us, Nothing is impossible with God, which is the focus of the song by the group Building 429. Watch and listen to its words. We never given the spirit of fear, only 
That is so very true. And Jesus repeated this same thing in Matthew's 19th chapter, verse 26 in the New Living Translation. He said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So move from seeing life through your eye of frustration and fear and see more and more of your life through God's eye of faith. Just remember, nothing is impossible. And if you look at the word impossible itself... It is spelled this way, I am possible, as in I'm possible. And looking through your mind's eye of faith in God, you indeed are. Join me in prayer. Great God, we just thank you so much for your word. It's so rich. There's so much there. And even though parts of it were written thousands and thousands of years ago, it still just, just cuts to the core of who we are in what it is we're going through life. It cuts to the core of our relationship with you and how, Father, the world tells us, you'll look through your human eyes to see things humanly and rather than see things through your eyes holy. And so, Father, thank you for your word this morning. And may we, Father, see more and more of you and less and less of the frustration and the fear around us in this week to come. Thank you for that. May we see with holy eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.